All right, everyone, let's uh, bow our heads, commit this time in the Word of God to prayer. Father, thank you again so much for your love and your goodness to us. We, we uh, can stand amazed at the mercy you show us, uh, your willingness to forgive us of our sins, your gift of the Holy Spirit to preserve us and to provide us for every good thing that we need to excel in godliness. We thank you for your word, Lord, which contains all truth, and we ask that you would give us the wisdom to understand it and hearts that desire to love and obey you. Um, thanks so much for bringing us back from California and how good it is to, to be with the church this morning. Bless our time together, Lord. May it glorify you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's uh, open our Bibles to the book of Second Peter. Book of Second Peter. Realize I probably talk about First Peter a lot on accident when I mean to say Second Peter, but here we are in Second Peter. We've been away from it for, for several weeks in the interest of doing some uh, different studies and as well as other of our men taking the pulpit, but uh, we return this morning uh, really to the second section, and that is chapter 2. So if you're there, I will be reading from verses 1 through 3, which will provide somewhat of a solid introduction for us uh, as to this section of chapter 2. So hear the word of the Lord. But false prophets arose, also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. So in this introduction of chapter 2, we have some very strong words uh, from the Apostle Peter. And if you do a brief uh, jet tour of chapter 1, there is so much encouragement there. He is speaking directly to the saints in these churches, really trying to draw them back to the grace that they have in Jesus Christ, that they would excel in knowledge, right? That they would know their Savior better, that they would continue to grow in Christian love and maturity, but they would not forget what Peter initially taught to them, and they would understand the power of and authority of the Holy Scriptures and learn to embrace that truth and to glorify Christ in that manner. And so we too can draw near and really anchor our trust and hope that we have the Word of God, that He speaks fully and clearly to us, that there is no doubt that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, and that that testimony is complete and clear in the Word of God. So chapter 2, coming on the heels of that, it's, uh, it's time for words of judgment. And you'll notice that in chapter 2, uh, Peter does not pull any punches, and he is not one to do so as as is true of the other apostles. But he's very, very harsh here, you could say, but he's also uh, unashamedly clear. And in doing this uh, study in Second Peter, 
had some initial thoughts uh, just regarding people in general. It begins like this, is that one of the most ironic things about the human race is our supposed love of all things authentic, a supposed desire for the real. We don't like fake, supposedly. We don't like that which is not clear, that which is synthetic. We apply that supposed commitment and desire to most things. When it comes to fake, when it comes to being phony, it's one of those things where we claim to detest it above all things. Think about the things that we find obnoxious in life, troublesome. It is typically things that masquerade as authentic or real, but then turn out not to be. Nothing is more obnoxious than when things prove to be other than what we thought they were. You know, we often think of the, you know, no, it's too good to be true, right? We, that, that can come to mind. We thought something was good, and it turned out to not be that. We find that we detest this mostly in people. You've probably used the phrase, I can't stand people who are fake. I got to know this person, and they weren't the real deal. People who pretend to be someone that they are not. Now, this term is still used a little bit today, but it was very popular in the 90s when I was growing up, and the term was poser. Of course, that's the title to today's sermon and, and uh, undergirds much of the, of, of the topic uh, I, I examined in Second Peter chapter 2, this term poser. It's the guy who wore the Air Jordans, but he couldn't make a simple layup on a fast break. It's the guy who, you knew, that you knew this guy, you, you met him in high school most likely. It's the guy who spouts off knowledge about sports cars, but couldn't, couldn't change his own oil if his life depended upon it. And being from Southern California, we were just there. It's like the surfer who sits on the sand all morning and waxes his surfboard. Sits there. Oh, you good? You coming in, you coming in brah? No, no, I got to got to prepare, man. Got to before I go hit those tasty barrels, I got to sit here and wax my board, right? But he sits there all day waxing, never surfing. You know what that man was called? He was a poser. He was a phony. He didn't know anything about surfing. In fact, the more you found out about him, you really didn't want him to go in the water. Someone would lose an eye getting poked by his surfboard. Find it in many contexts. But I think worst of all, we find it in the spiritual setting. In the person who pretends to love God and trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, but then goes back and forth between living like a Pharisee or living like a legalist. He's either completely worldly or he thinks he's better than you. He thinks he's morally and spiritually superior than you and looks down on everyone else. But the one thing he is not is what he claims to be, a lover of Jesus Christ and a lover of the church of Jesus Christ. It's really interesting how you see all these, the ebb and flow of these, of these cultural trends. And one of them that was very evident, especially at the turn of the century, you know, early 2000s was the emergent church. If you guys are familiar with that, they had a heavy, they put a heavy premium on this need for authentic Christian community, as if that was something that had been lost throughout the centuries before. But just wanting to really be a part 
of an authentic Christian community. It was difficult to really understand after reading their literature what they, what they meant by that. But the need was still expressed. And even a broken clock is right twice a day. So even a, a movement such as this did see this, this, that there was something lacking in professing Christianity, that there was a sort of a, a phoniness to it. That there were people amongst the Christian community who proclaimed to know Christ and yet really did not. It seemed to be merely a surface, a surface thing. See, we should have a problem with that. We should have a problem with it when we see it in ourselves or when we allow it to take root in our midst. This lack of authenticity, being a people who desperately want to be perceived as something that we're not. See, we prize it, supposedly. Yeah, it's interesting. You consider our environment as well. We find this not only in people, but we are surrounded by things that are, materially speaking, phony. We live in a world made of plastic. We hardly use raw materials anymore. Almost everything we use is manufactured. Almost everything we use is synthetic or plastic. You know what happens when that desk you thought was made of a glorious slab of maple only turns out to be veneer, starts to dry out a little bit, crack? You can't even repair it. It's fake. It's only surface-level maple, but not the real thing through and through. It's cheap veneer. We don't use cast iron anymore for the most part. We use Teflon. We don't buy leather. We buy pleather, and then we call it leather. Instead of hardwood flooring, we use luxury vinyl, right? <laughs> luxury vinyl. <laughs> Give me a break. Instead of something that is robust and will last a long time, it is fake. Sometimes we do these things mostly because we're cheap. You know, we want to save money. We want it to look good, but we don't want to expend ourselves too much financially. And so sometimes we just end up buying things throughout the course of life that are cheaper, but qualitatively do not last as long. Qualitatively, they fall short. And why is that? It's because they're fake. They're not real. They've really had, they're made of real things, but in a sense, they've had the real sucked out of them going through that manufacturing process. Suffice it to say, I think we have to stop and wonder whether we are really as in love with the authentic as we think we are. But in spite of this, I think for the most part, we are content to live in both worlds. One where we've enjoy the real and authentic, and another where we just are satisfied with using synthetic things. For instance, your car, you know, the shell is probably some, some kind of sophisticated fiberglass paneling, but there's leather, luxurious leather seats inside. Gives you that new car smell that we all know and love. You'll sleep on a cotton pillowcase, but the pillow itself is full of synthetic down. You'll eat your real grass-fed organic burger. And then on the side of it, you'll slam a Diet Coke, which is more effective for cleaning your toilet than putting in your body. <laughs> and for the most part, these are regular and acceptable compromises. You know, we can even say that to a degree, synthesizing materials for human use is an act of dominion. It's not necessarily a bad thing, merely an observation that, has, that carries with it some profound implications. But we're pointing to a devastating and troubling issue, and that is the fact that this kind of compromise, this willingness to accept that which is real and that which is a poser, has found its way into the church. And this is what 
Peter addresses. Now, if we look in verse 1, we'll notice right away regarding these posers, these false prophets, are not people whom Peter is disproving. Peter is on the offensive here. He is not disproving, but he is denouncing. He is not examining, but excoriating. He is not refuting. He is raking them over the coals, exposing them for the phonies they are. He is, in stunning fashion, violating the 11th commandment of thou shalt always be nice. There's nothing nice or pleasant about what Peter says in this chapter regarding false prophets. It's amazing his, his explanation. Some of these teachers, some teachers, we have to keep this in mind, some teachers and their teaching are so blatantly false, so dangerous, so threatening to the body of Christ that certain occasions, and I would say even many occasions, require that they do not have any platform inside the body of Christ, that they do not have a voice in the church. And typically, we do not like that regarding you know, what we would perceive as those on the opposite end of the spectrum of what we believe, right? We're, we're constantly saying, hey, wait a minute, why is my voice silenced here? Why do I not have a, a, a platform in the marketplace of ideas, right? Well, we could just as easily say, well, we, we say that because the Word of God deserves to be heard. The gospel deserve, is worthy of being listened to. And from that point of view, there are certain teachings whose errors are so dangerous that we have, to, we have to shut them down altogether. And this is what Peter precisely has in view. The best explanation for this may be that this false doctrine being peddled by these wolves in sheep's clothing has already been brought to the forefront and has been refuted. Okay? Typically, there is a time where you allow the person to explain themselves. This is what I'm hearing, but what do you think about it? You know, we, we're able to listen to people. But once they have been refuted, once their false teaching has been examined, there has to come a line, and I would say rather swiftly, where we no longer give them any audience. They have to be driven out, the teacher and the teaching. They've already been shown their error. It has been corrected in the church, and there simply remains no other remedy but to expose the teachers for who they really are. Love Peter Lightheart's comment here. Though the chapter is alarming to modern sensibilities, Peter's vehemence is just the outgrowth of his deep pastoral commitment. When he looks at the false teachers, he sees nothing but a blur of white fangs, claws, and gray fur beneath the covering of wool, and he girds himself to make war on the wolves. And that's something that is dreadfully lacking in the church today, is, is sort of the ignorance that we preach a gospel that actually has teeth, that cuts, right? That cuts into error. And so when the wolves bear their fangs, the gospel must be unleashed in order to bite back. And so as we get into this chapter, and we'll only really get through the first uh, part of the first verse, but it's very important for our introduction into what Peter is going to teach these precious churches to whom he is writing. But regarding false teachers, so verses 1 through 3 is essentially an introduction to the rest of chapter 2. But we'll look at hopefully the first three today, and they are simply this. Posers, their determination, secondly their deceit, and thirdly their denial. So determination, deceit, and denial. Those are the things we want to examine today. So listen to what Peter says. But false prophets also arose among the people. That's his opening 
statement. So, that we, so there we have in view their determination. Determination in the sense that throughout history, there have always been deceptive people. There have always been deceivers that were strategically placed amongst the people of God in order to lead them astray, in order to lead them into sin, and most devastatingly, to outright kill them. The first act of deception was an act of murder. When Satan deceived Eve in the garden, he deceived her in such a way that brought death upon her and the man Adam and to all of their progeny. The death principle has reigned among men since then. So there is a particular factor of determination that drives false prophets in their work. We see this uh, in the very words of Jesus. If you're familiar with Matthew chapter 7, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. See, there's a directness to them. They will find you, guaranteed. And it's not by accident. They will come looking for you. Wolves eat sheep. (laughs) They love to eat sheep. They love to chase sheep. They love to scare sheep. And so they are, by nature, predators. So they will smell out the flock of God, as it were, and come in your midst. And so Peter simply says here, but false prophets also arose among the people. There's the reality of the situation that can't be denied. We have to deal with this and deal with it regularly and consistently and by faith. So false prophets, simply men who claim to speak for God but do not. Remember that in his first letter, Peter comforts these churches while they are, for the most part, enduring persecution from without. Now they are confronting deception from within. And as we've remarked in our study of Second Peter a multitude of times, it's a two-front battle, right? There's the war without persecution from those who deny Christ. They don't pretend to be Christians. They just want to attack the gospel and everything about it. But then there is the battle within, which I would say is a much more strategic and often trickier battle than the one from without. Because... False prophets pretend to speak for God. They pretend to be Christian. And as Peter describes them, they, they arose, right? They arose. This is something that is historically grounded, something that is already taking place. The fact that there are false prophets wandering around isn't anything new among the people of God. Ever since God called the people to himself, Satan has deployed his emissaries even from among the people. And he has always succeeded in sowing tares among the wheat. And then, of course, they grow up together. But listen to this. But false prophets. What has Peter just been speaking about? He just got done speaking about men moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. So Peter is speaking of the writers of the Old Testament Scriptures, and we considered these men uh, many weeks ago. But they were not conjurers. They were not writing of their own accord or imagination. God was using them, rather, as an instrument to put His revelation, His saving revelation, into written form in order to preserve for His people the faith once for all delivered to the saints, that is us, and additionally to have a ready weapon against anything or anyone who would come in and try to lead the people of God astray with the message contrary to the gospel. But such is not the case for the false prophets. 
They are the conjurers. They are those who dream up things that are not so. They are the ones who follow cleverly devised tales. They are the posers. They are those who say, thus saith the Lord, when He has not spoken. It's interesting, we see this very profound expression of this from uh, Zechariah. Consider his words. He's the prophet who ministered to the Jewish people after they came back from exile. They're trying to to rebuild the temple. And in in chapter 13, he says this, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts. So what day is he talking about? Context seemed to indicate events in the new covenant era following the ascension of the Lord Jesus. So it's around actually the time that Peter is writing this letter. So what is he going to do? He says, in that day that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, you shall not live for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. Now listen to verse 4 here. Also, it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. And they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. So what's this hairy robe about? This is referring to the fact that these so-called prophets were coming in, in the same spirit of Elijah. How is Elijah described? Oh, that guy, yeah, he was, uh, he was a hairy man, and he, wear, he wore a leather girdle, right? That's how Elijah was described. And so those men who would want to be seen in the same manner of Elijah would effectively usurp his mantle and pretend to speak for God. But it says here, in order to deceive. So that's what they would do. And it's interesting that even though the Lord himself sent John the Baptist, in the spirit of Elijah, as a forerunner to the Lord Jesus Christ, after Christ's ascension, you still have men like this who want to be viewed as an Elijah figure. They want to prophesy. They want to have influence. Right? They want to have power among the people of God, and yet they have taken a mantle that does not belong to them. And that's the setting, from among the people. I think what's going on here is people here refers primarily to the Jews. Remember, you had the Jews in the first century scattered amongst the Roman Empire, and you had these mixed congregations of Jews and Gentiles. And so he says, as it was true for the Jewish, the, the Jewish people, it will be no different for you. Just, as Peter says, as there will also be false teachers among you. So in this sense, there is no reason to relax. There's no reason to to lower your guard. Keep your guard up. Keep your eyes open and be fervent and steadfast in prayer. Know the Scripture so that you can stand against those who come masquerading as prophets. They are false. And that will continue. That will continue until they are rooted out, until Christ puts them under His feet, until they are, as it were, pierced through with finality. So there is quite the, quite the pattern here. Nothing that Peter is saying is either unique in redemptive history as a whole or especially is unique in these churches in the first century. Remember this, and this would go back to the very words of Jesus in Matthew 24 when Jesus is 
telling of the eventual destruction and judgment upon the city of Jerusalem, he says this very same thing. At that time, you know, around the time of judgment, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. And then he says this, many false prophets will arise and mislead many. So that's verses 10 through 11. Then you skip ahead down to verse 22. He says this, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. Okay, so you fast forward from that, from that period of time, maybe around 30 AD or 30 CE, whatever you, you make of that. And then you go ahead three decades, somewhere thereabouts. Here is what is happening. Peter is describing what the Lord told them ahead of time. This is going to happen. So when it comes, you can more effectively lead the flock. But don't believe those who masquerade as false Christ, even if they show great signs and wonders. We read also, this is from the Apostle Paul, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. The reason I bring up this statement is you've got to remember the context. Paul is not talking about some day in the far-flung future. He is talking to Timothy in the present. Timothy finds himself in these Later times, and people are, again, falling away from the faith isn't something unique to our time. It has always happened, but there, it seemed that there was a, a period of time after the ascension of Christ and before the destruction of Jerusalem that, that this was happening in, a, in sort of a, a very profound fashion in the church. They were turning away, and they were trying to enact some very strange laws that were contrary to the liberty that God had granted for his people. And so it happened. Paul tells Timothy this is going to happen. Why? Because the Spirit says so. So, so is Peter saying this. Paul repeats this in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 6. Again, part of, our, part of our, the, the Scripture reading. But realize this, that in the last day, difficult times will come. Again, the last days. The last days in reference to where Timothy is. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And then he says, avoid such men as these. Right? He's telling Timothy, they are already here. Avoid these men. And so, in, in terms of application, we follow the same directive. But that is what, what Paul is saying in First and Second Timothy is not unique to the 20th and 21st centuries. This was something that was happening as the first century church grew and the gospel went forth throughout the Roman Empire. Now, this same passage, look at verses 13 and 14. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse. Now, if we read on in 2 Peter chapter 2, this is the very thing that Peter describes. 
They're just getting worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. So he's warning him. Same warning. Peter, Peter and Paul both are warning these churches and Paul, a pastor in the church of Ephesus, that the false teachers are here. Now consider the words of the Apostle John. He has the same thing. Listen to his language. 1 John 2.18 Children, it is the last hour. Yes, it is the last hour. Same thing. In the latter times, right? The end of the ages. The end of all things. Same time period and focus. Just, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, who's Antichrist? That's a false teacher. Someone who stands in the place of Christ. Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. So they're all over the place and they're going forth and will continue to do so until Christ has completely rooted them out. And Christ also, Jesus says to the disciples in Luke 17, 1, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. So you have that first reference of judgment. Yes, they will come. They will proliferate. They will deceive some. But woe to that man, right? If he's a stumbling block for the people of God, it is better for him that a millstone should be tied around his neck and cast into the sea. That's how offensive, that's how odious this activity is to the Lord. It'd be better if that person were never born. And what are these false teachers who arise doing? What are they doing? What is their, what is their activity? Because certainly they are determined. There have always been false prophets, starting from Satan. You think of, uh, you think of Balaam, who deceived, who deceived the, the nation of Israel. And even throughout uh, the kingdom of Israel, many false prophets came, led kings, led the congregation, even the priests astray to engage in all kinds of false worship, all kinds of idolatry, all kinds of sexual immorality seems to be a staple of false gospels. This is what's going on. That is their determination. They were among the Jewish people, and now there will also be false teachers among you, the church, the true Israel composed of Jew and Gentile. What will they do? And here we come to the second part. Here is the deceit. There's the determination and the deceit. What will they do? They will secretly introduce the destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. So there's the denial. But let's focus right now on the deceitfulness. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Here's where the word poser comes up once again. Pretending to be something. Coming in under a certain pretense carrying a particular teaching, and then it turns out that they are acting in a clandestine manner. They are secretly introducing destructive heresies. So the secrecy ends up being a, an agent of destruction. Very sad when this takes root amongst the people of God, the people of God who, though sheep, have the Holy Spirit, though sheep have the Word of God, though sheep have a faithful shepherd. You know, Jude says the very same thing. You know, combine all of this together. The same thing is happening all over the Roman Empire in a multitude of churches. Jude 1.4, for certain persons have crept in, what? Unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Okay, that's the first part of that verse. 
They've crept in unnoticed. It's not as if they came in and no one knew that Steve or Bob was, was, was there among the congregation. It's not that. It's their teaching, mostly, that was secretive. They didn't seem to give any kind of, any kind of phoniness when they first arrived. But then they brought in secret teaching. They came in discreetly. They had other plans. Well, if this is so bad, right? If this is so bad, because there's something particularly outstanding about false teaching. But then if, if that's the case, if this is so destructive, then how does something like this remain secret? How does this happen? Listen to what Calvin said. He said, by these words, he points out the craftiness of Satan. And of all the ungodly who militate under, the, under his banner, that they would creep in by oblique turnings as though burrows underground. The more watchful then ought the godly to be. See, we're not hopeless, right? Continuing the quote. So that they may escape their hidden frauds. For however they may insinuate themselves, they cannot circumvent those who are carefully vigilant. Who are the carefully vigilant? Let me explain. Exhibit A. Yes? Yes? My Bible doesn't say that. It says something else. It says something to the contrary. That's, that's how to remain vigilant, is to be in the Word. But, thinking, but taking this a little further, I do believe that Peter, in a very remarkable way, is drawing from the Old Testament text. So going back to answering that question, how then do they secretly introduce these destructive her- heresies? How do they, in the words of Calvin, burrow underground? Well, I think we find that in the word secretly, this term secretly introduce. And what this, what this term refers to is someone who brings in something on the side. As an, you know, you've heard that phrase, as an aside or a, a, a by the way. So what happens is that one of the, the main reasons they're able to bring in secret teaching, secret destructive heresies, is that they don't come in broadcasting that destructive heresy. They bring, in it, they bring it in as an aside, as something that initially doesn't seem like a big deal, but you will soon notice that's the only thing they can talk about. And they keep bringing it up as if it's the be-all and end-all. That's how they do it. They bring it in as an aside. They smuggle it in. If you're familiar at all with the cartels in Mexico, I read an interesting way of how they... They, 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 smuggle in, they smuggle in drugs. A couple ways. One of them is quite horrifying, is they will kidnap someone and they will actually stuff the drugs inside their body and sew it back up and bring that person across the border. I've heard stories of them putting cocaine in the tubes of bicycles. They don't think, it'll, they don't think they'll be caught. Because what do you see? You see a bicycle. Who do you see? You see a person. There's nothing wrong with that. By all appearances, it's a bicycle and a human being. There's nothing about that thing or that individual that should cause us to be alarmed, but that's just it on the surface. Inside, there's all manner of falsehood, all manner of, of devilry, of spiritual trickery designed to destroy, designed to harm the people of God. But there's something really interesting. We should draw our minds to this because we want to understand Again, the whole counsel of God and where I really believe that uh, where, where Peter is drawing this from, this, this bringing in to the side. They're one of the most uh, well-known uh, 
idols in the Old Testament was known as the Asherah. Most of us are familiar with the Asherah. makes a lot of appearances, especially when God is making commandments regarding the worship of Israel. There's a lot of great resources um, online. Um, GotQuestions.org was particularly helpful, so credit to whom credit is due. But the Asherah was the name of this idol and was worshipped in Syria, Phoenicia, and Canaan. So that's all over. I mean, that's, that's the nation surrounding Israel. The Asherah was a big deal. The Phoenicians called her Astarte, and the Assyrians worshipped her as Ishtar. That may be familiar to you. And of course, the Asherah uh, from 1 Samuel 31 was a premier god of the Philistines. And of course, you know that when Israel went in to conquer the land, to take the land, right? The Lord has given it to them. Because that conquest was incomplete on some level, one of the things that survived, horrifically enough, was the worship of Asherah. And this Asherah worship became a thorn in the side, just as the Lord told them for, until, until the exile. Joshua had no sooner been put in the ground than this idolatry began to take root. And it's interesting that this term taking root is used because the Asherah was often represented as a limbless tree, right? It was formed from a tree, a real piece of art, apparently. And so what was happening is that, is that after the limb was, the limbs were removed, the trunk would then be carved, right? It would be fashioned into a representation of a goddess. And from there it and from there it went and plagued Israel. One of, uh, this is one of King Manasseh's deeds. You've got to remember, King Manasseh was one bad dude. He just, and it's like he would invent ways of doing evil, but one of the things he did was he took the carved Asherah that he had made and he put it in the temple. So what is, what's going on here visually? You have the temple, you have the altar, and what is happening is that the Asherah is being smuggled in, being brought in, and put to the side. That's how it happens. That's how it starts. And in the same sense, false teachers bring in their own expression of an Asherah to put it beside the true king and true Lord. See, this is, this is what goes on, guys, in false, in, 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 with false gospels. We're not saying, not Jesus, this. We're saying, Jesus and this. Let's bring, in, let's bring this too. Just as Aaron's sons brought in the, the strange fire, right? I'm going to worship God in my own fashion. It becomes an Asherah to, to think that the people of God would bring something into place beside the altar to offer a, to offer a worship that would compete with worshiping the true and living God. Is, it, it, it removes the mystery of why Peter is dealing with these false teachers in such a severe and intolerant fashion because the danger is so great. This is scandalous. This is something that, you know, one of the many things that eventually removed Israel from the land. The, the land, as the Lord said, puked them out because what they were doing was absolutely detestable. The Asherah actually is, ends up being mentioned 18 times in the Old Testament. And this, and this sort of typological form of false worship, it, it wreaks the same destruction in the church 
today as it did back then. Because it is to bring something alongside true worship of God and to offer it in the same spirit. It is to say that this object might as well be the Lord. This object might as well be Jesus. And so we must confront this with severity, with quickness, with boldness. I think that's one of the problems. We, we, de- we develop a sort of cowardice even when we think that we may stand alone and so we refuse to confront this kind of madness. Moving on with some more details of this, of this Asherah, it was often seen as a, a queen or, or a goddess consort partner of Baal. Right? We, we read all about Baal, man, from Judges on. So while Asherah was worshipped as the goddess of love and war, right? sometimes it is, Asherah was particularly noted for its sexual immorality, ritual prostitution, and interestingly enough, you read on in this passage, what happens? This false worship is introduced, it's brought in on the side and placed alongside a spiritual altar, a living sacrifice as it were, and many follow their sensuality. Surprise, surprise, the same thing happens. It's unreal. That is why Peter is warning us in such strong fashion. Pay attention to this, right? Be vigilant. Continue to grow. But these false teachers need not be entertained or given a platform to spew their lies. They must be exposed and and put out. Listen to what Deuteronomy 16.21 says. You shall not plant for yourself an Asherah of any kind of tree beside the altar of the Lord your God, which you shall make for yourself. There it is, the planting, right? The the visual illustration is stunning. You plant something, what happens? It takes root, and then it grows, right? And the longer and longer it grows, the harder it is to remove. And if you planted something like that before the altar of the Lord, what would happen? Its branches would grow in such a way that it would obscure the altar. It would cover up that, 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 that object of true, that, that reference true worship of the living God. And that's, what, and that's what false teaching does, right? That's what the enemy is content with. He is content just to have a competing God. He is, he is content that we simply add something to Christ, right? rather than removing Christ quickly. But ironically, what happens is, is, as the Lord says, you shall have no other gods before me. Right? Do not make for yourself a graven image. Because to bring something alongside the Lord for worship as an object is to completely attempt to remove God from that worship. You cannot worship God in something else. God is only to be worshipped alone. Something that He is explicit on throughout the entirety of Holy Writ. That is one of the most clear things taught in all of Scripture, is that you worship God and you worship Him alone. No other gods in His presence. Time and time again, this was warned to His people. You know, when uh, the wicked kings of Israel ruled, Jezebel comes up. She, makes, she brings in Asherah worship, right? alongside of worship of Baal to where you have this this basically cultist of prophets all over Israel who are even on the king's payroll. They're being paid as ministers of a false gospel. 
And when God would intervene at times and deliver Israel, guess what? Which idol ended up being removed or torn down or dealt with? The Asherah. That's how much of a plague it was. That's how much of a that's how much it slipped Israel up. It says, beware. Do not, get, do not get caught into that. And you would find that when a righteous king would come along, one thing he would do, he would cut down the Asherah. Wicked king would come in. Yep, here comes the Asherah again, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And that is exactly what happens when false teachers are given platform amongst the community of the faithful. They bring in that Asherah again. And then they plant it. And then, unfortunately, some churches, if they are not vigilant, if they are not committed to the authority of Scripture, they just watch it grow. Oh, how lovely is the shade! Look at how beautiful the bark is! Right. Kind of smells nice, too. And then pretty soon, it's, the, the, the church, in, in a sense, loses its identity. Because it's just it's enamored with the beauty of this false idol. And it forgets the Lord. It forgets the beauty and sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it destroys. Don't forget that in this final warning of this part. This is destructive. Right? This is so destructive. I'll give you a few ways. How does this destroy? Right? Peter isn't using fanciful language. He's telling the truth. This is something that takes apart. So here's a few things to think of. One is that these destructive heresies divide the fellowship. That's the first thing you're going to notice, right? And those are the things to look out for. Is there a doctrine, like a peripheral doctrine, being brought in, being brought to the forefront that is some mixture of truth and error, that is an Asherah placed next to the altar of God that keeps coming up, that, that seems to captivate a portion of the fellowship to the point where the fellowship is divided, it can be simply something simple as emphasis, right? Well, we're preaching the gospel. We're emphasizing this. Well, we're emphasizing this, and this is, this is what God calls us to do. This is, this is the more important work. Right? So it disrupts the fellowship in that regard. It, it turns one brother against another. Here's the other thing that will inevitably follow if destructive, if destructive heresies are allowed to infiltrate, if that Asherah remains planted. It will disrupt the work of the church. What is the church called to do? Tell me. Advance the kingdom through what? Through Christ. The proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a mighty work, friends. That is not a work done with one hand on the plow. Unless your other hand is holding a sword. We can't get distracted. We cannot allow these fanciful doctrines to come in and though they masquerade as things that are good and helpful and even wise and profound, if they distract us from the true work of advancing the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, they must be stopped. Can't allow the work of the church to be disrupted. Think that in some, I think some of you military folks in her, here can uh, confirm that. There's this huge emphasis being pushed on equality, diversity, and inclusion. Can I get a head, head nod? Is that really happening? Yeah. Equality, diversity, inclusion. In the military, that's fundamentally what is most important. Instead of being deadly and dangerous and a force not to be messed with, a force prepared for the national defense, we're worried about diversity, inclusion, and equality. 
We get, we get disrupted in the same sense in the church when something that is not fundamental to the mission of the gospel is brought in and proclaimed as fundamental. Here's another thing. They, they destroy in that they distort the truth. And that's what Jude writes about before his warning, right? The faith once for all delivered unto the saints. That's what we fight for. That's what we preserve. That's what we stand on guard against is that someone takes this truth and twists it in such a way to where it is hardly, hard to be understood and leads people astray. See, the truth of the gospel is a truth that is pure, is not to be added to, is not to be, um, not to be messed with, not to be modified or customized. It is complete as it was handed down to the apostles. And to distort that is to bring in your own Asherah. And most importantly, see, it divides, disrupts, distorts, but most, the thing that should weigh most heavily on our hearts is that these destructive heresies distract us from the glory of God and Christ. Why do we preach the gospel? Why do we advance the kingdom? We do it so that Christ is magnified above all. We, we preach the gospel so that Christ may be all in all, so that He may have the dominion, so that He may be preeminent, so that He may come, as Colossians says, to have first place in everything. Right. And when we bring in our own Asherahs, we are telling, we're basically telling God, hey, you get a participation trophy, Lord, because there's another truth here that we want to proclaim on the side of the gospel. And we have to understand, and we know this from Peter, God is not going to tolerate that. He is not going to wink at that. That is something that in the very heart of God must be destroyed. And guess what? He uses us to do that. So far be it from those who claim to know and love Christ and want to advance His kingdom to sit there and aid and abet this kind of idolatry, to aid and abet the smuggling of Asherah beside the altar of God. We must have conviction. We must have a, again, a faith that is strengthened before this to stand for our Lord, to proclaim the gospel alone and keep this madness out. That if it has taken root, we, we dig it up immediately. Right? But I would say the most godly, faithful way to, hand, to handle something of uh, a threat of this magnitude is to never let it enter our midst in the first place. But if it is smuggled in, may the Lord give us wisdom to identify it and squash it and be reckoned as faithful stewards of His gospel. So those are the first two things, my friends. Their determination and their deceit. And we will handle the, next, the, the, the remainder of those next time. But for now, let's consider the presence of these false teachers, let's consider the threat, but above all, let us consider the faithfulness of our God, our good shepherd, who equips us in every way to stand guard faithfully against this. Don't forget that. I don't want, there's, there's going to be a lot of what we would normally understand as, wow, this is a downer, right, in the text before us. Peter's just blasting away. He just started blasting, right? So, with all of that, we want to remind ourselves to be encouraged that greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. So let's take the time 
uh, in prayer now to to, uh, ask God to help us in this sacred battle. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love and faithfulness. And even though we know that um, as false teachers and their teaching plagued Israel um, and continue to plague the church today, we recognize that we serve you, that you are with us, and that we, most importantly, are under a new covenant, a new covenant that you uphold in your faithfulness, a new covenant that preserves us, a new covenant that secures our inheritance forever, and yet you are also faithful to warn us against compromise, against falling away, against letting the purveyors of false gospels infiltrate our midst and so plant the Asherah among us. So may we uh, truly, Lord, be shovel-ready to root these things out when they reveal themselves. Lord, we, in order to do this, we must rely on Your wisdom. We know it's impossible without You. We need You. We need Your Word. We need Your Holy Spirit guiding us into truth to keep our eyes open to, as to how these threats and when these threats present themselves so that we may not be captured unaware. So, Lord, may we be faithful students of Your Word, but also, Lord, to be on our knees frequently uh, pleading for the grace that is so abundantly supplied in Christ that we would be able to, to recognize when those threats appear. Lord, we, as Your people, desire to serve You um, we desire to be faithful. We desire the, the, the pureness, a, 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 a pure gospel to, to really reign preeminent in our midst, that we would be a people of grace, a people who love you and who love your Son, that we would be even more determined in the truth than false teachers are in their falsehood. And Lord, above all, we can take... Uh, We can take comfort in the fact that you are more determined than either of us. You are determined for your kingdom to grow. You are determined to to build a holy house with the holy people and that nothing, even your imperfect saints, can derail that. Even the most mighty false prophet can in no way endanger the plan that you have for your glory to spread among all the earth. So help us, God, not to be deceived. Help us to walk in truth and take joy in the fact that you are always with us. Bless our worship. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.